infinitely. In a moment, you have all power to stop anything. And yet, for your own purposes, you have not ended our lives because of our sin. You have extended to us life. You continue to extend to us life as individuals, as a church, as community, and as a nation. We have sinned grievously in sins that we know we've committed and sins we have not committed. You have been patient to not destroy us in your wrath. Father, we pray for our nation. It's in a time of turmoil and division. There are many godless men and women on right, center, and left who would like to nothing more than to destroy, to kill, to take what should not be taken. Father, we pray for our president. We ask that President Biden would listen to the words and understand the words that you have spoken and that you would give him the moral courage to stand against his own. And advocate for the voiceless millions in the womb. No country in the world has more economic power than this one. God help us if we use that to end the lives of innocent children. Out of convenience, out of poverty, whatever the excuse. Lord help us. Lord, we pray for our own representatives this morning. The nine who sit in our place and vote one way or another on bill after bill that affects life throughout. From the womb to the tomb. In every bill there is an underlying ethic and worldview. Help our men and women representing us here in Alabama to be able to see with wisdom, with understanding, with farsightedness, each bill. Not to just see the quick and easy solutions, but to see the hard ones, to do the difficult thing. We pray for them, that you would strengthen them, that you would give wisdom, and that you would give them understanding. Father, we pray for our governor and her cabinet and leaders as they make decisions each and every day that impact those who are impoverished, those who uh, are in sickness, those who are in need of employment. All of these are issues of life, all of them. 
And they all deeply matter to you. We pray, God, that in this moral changing season that we are living in, this rapid change, that you would protect the orphans and those without fathers and mothers. We know that many would advocate the end of adoption agencies that take a stand for traditional marriage and the roles of men and women and even gender to say that there is a man and there is a woman. As, Lord, in our day, we have acted foolish. And the threat hangs over the many who seek to advocate for the orphan that their agencies will be over and done. Oh, God, help us. 220 million orphans in the world. And we're foolishly threatening people who want to help them. <laughs> of all the people of the earth, we have been given so much. And yet, we are running headlong away from you. And we have been for so long. Help us now. Help us in this church and help us in this broader community and society that we live in this culture to lament our sin, to repent and turn to you. Have mercy on us, O oh God, for we are sinners. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 106. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And you might notice the graphic that uh, Christian worked hard on this week. And if it, I know that it's not maybe a typical graphic you would see on a Sunday like this one. Um, not to talk about anybody else's graphics. But he captured what really I told him this sermon was about. And those drops that you see, those drops of water, are not raindrops, but teardrops. Because what we are in desperate need of is lament and mourning. We've lost that element in our day. Carl Truman said recently that he grew up in Scotland, spent most of his life in Scotland, and the most shocking thing he experienced when he came to the United States and started to attend a church was that there was no lamenting. There was no time in the service for weeping. He's like, you know, our people, when we worship, we weep and we mourn. And when we come to the United States, it's triumphal and it's victorious all the time. There's never a space for just saying, we're sinners and we need you, oh God. And so I want to preach a sermon on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday called A, a Call to Repentance and Revival. That's what I believe Psalm 106 is. One of the important elements of the Christian faith is the belief that we... As a people are not home in the world. This is not our home. We are, as Jesus said, in the world, but not of the world. Historically, we've referred to ourselves as pilgrims who are merely traveling through this life toward our true home with Christ. And this belief doesn't deny I want to make sure you understand this. It doesn't deny that we are called to make a difference in this world. The belief that we're pilgrims doesn't mean that we hate our culture. It doesn't mean that we 
totally reject everything in our culture so as to withdraw and have no impact. That's not what the call is. But the call is to never feel at home. You should and I should feel like an alien, a foreigner, in a place that's not really ours yet. I say yet because in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be ours. But it's not ours yet. And that's the way the historic view of this world is for a Christian. It simply emphasizes the need of the true church to remain separate from the culture, sanctified in the culture, holy, set apart for God. But though we would all agree with the need to live this way, it's difficult to live separately, isn't it? I mean, would everybody just nod your head collectively? It's hard to live separately in this world. It's not an easy thing. Um, I think about the story of the, the fish analogy. If you ask a fish, what is water? Can he answer the question? He's just always been in the water. He doesn't know. And so much of our culture is that way, isn't it? I mean, if you stop and ask, why do you do this? What is that? And why do y'all sing these songs? And why do you eat those foods? My brother was here, and they eat Cajun food, and my heart sings for that. You know, I got roots back in Louisiana, though I never lived there. But when they cook those spices and those foods, I just feel at home, you know. It's just something about it. But if I ask them, why do you eat those things, their answer is, because we always have, you know. We don't really notice our culture when we are, especially when we're in the majority of the culture, it's just the way we live. We want to fit in with the culture, though, and sometimes this can cause a problem for us. And I want to be clear. You might hear what I'm saying, and you might think that I'm advocating total withdrawal, some Amish lifestyle on a farm stuck in the 17, 1800s, and that's not me. And that's not what I'm calling us to. I also don't think that we should follow a more fundamentalist model of separating from the world, which creates Christian islands, where we live in a way as if to withdraw from the society which we still live in. You know, we, we build megaplexes for Christ, and we don't work out at the local gym, and we even now shop uh, only in Christian stores, and we only go to restaurants owned by Christian people, and that's not what I'm advocating. I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's what Jesus calls us to. I think it's sad that so many have tried to solve the problem of following a path of making cultural compromise so that more people will attend churches. That bothers me, you know, the seeker-friendly movement that's been so popular. It also burdens me that others have totally left, for all practical purposes, the world God placed them in because they want to huddle up together and just survive until Jesus comes again. We must have a robust enough gospel and faith in Christ that we can understand that Christ is over culture. Christ is over it. He's not bound by it, so we're not bound by it. And we can live in this world with faith in Him. Today, I want to leave an understanding to leave understanding the impact. I want you to leave understanding the impact that our culture has had on us and continues to have on us in this specific area of the sanctity of human life. I believe the culture has seduced us into believing that we have done enough in this area when 
we protest abortion, when we give money to pro-life causes, when we vote for candidates that say that they are pro-life. While all of that is good, we absolutely should do those things. It's not enough. Let me give you a little more about this as we get started. The American dream is a philosophy that has been around from the very beginning of our society. The belief that a citizen in this nation should be exceptional, be a high achiever, pursue wealth, end their life with a beautiful spouse, great education, big bank account, a couple of kids. This thought process is the water we swim in. It's just, we don't recognize it because it's just us. And it always has been. Because if you go back and look, you can't find the shift. It's always been the thought. While any of these things that I've listed and talked about just now in themselves are not evil, they're not evil, they become evil when that becomes our overt purpose for living, our ultimate aim. Any of those things by themselves are okay, and a blessing from God often. But none of them should become why you live your life, or how you live your life, or how you make decisions about life. And the sad truth is that the United States church has made our own version of the American dream. The, and I, I dub it the American dream theology. And I'm not even sure we recognize how it, how it influences all of us. It's easy for Grace Fellowship to look over on other places and other tribes and see the violators. We can talk about them, right? Uh, we can wax eloquently about their problems. Protestant evangelical church in our day has been seduced by the American dream. Everything's about being bigger, better, right? And we've imported it all over the world in the form of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's easy for us to talk against that. All of us in here, I believe, at least if you're a member here, you, you are intentionally not joining that movement or the word of faith or all of those things. It's easy to look at them and say, obviously they believe in the American dream and they just put Jesus on it. That's easy. It's right to point that out, by the way. I believe it runs much deeper than that, and I believe it runs in, for a modern time word, it runs in our own tribe. So instead of looking at those tribes of Christians, those that aren't like us, I want us to look at us. How has it impacted us? How many of us have built the expectation for ourselves and those around us that the goal of life is to get saved, pursue a suitable, I want to insert some words here. By that I mean good looking Great personality, intelligent, and it helps if he has a big dowry spouse. Get a great education. Find a good job, career that has potential to let us go up and never sideways and never down. Have a couple of children. Spend life accumulating enough to prove to everyone, including ourselves, that we have been successful. After all of that is accomplished, we sail away into the beautiful sunset of life in early retirement, spending our days pursuing what makes us happy. No, we're going to attend church, and we're going to give offerings, and we're going we're to do those things. 
Because we're the right kind of Christians. How many of us suddenly or not so suddenly have both believed this lie and told our children and those around us they should buy into this lie? After all of this, I might have slightly exaggerated and made a caricature of the way you think. I did it on purpose. I exaggerate slightly so that you can still feel comfortable and you don't walk out the door. I'm baiting you to come into the lair with me. We really do suffer under the cultural norm that constantly tugs us away from our commitment to Jesus Christ. I do. I thought you do. Now you're scratching your head at this point. I thought we were talking about sanctity of life, and this dude's up here talking about the American dream and meddling. Well, I'm going to meddle a little more. This past couple of weeks, while I've been thinking about what does it mean to value every human life as an image bearer of God, I've been overwhelmed by the fact that our church culture allow, allows ourselves to believe the broader cultural lie that surrounds what I just called the American dream and leads us to devalue humans from the womb to the tomb. Because we value achievement and upper mobility so highly, we look down on those and view them as less valuable who are economically challenged and members of a lower class than us. Because we value higher education so much, we look at people who work blue-collar jobs as less than those who hold management positions or own their own businesses. And the blue-collar, that worker feels the disappointment of not being viewed valuably. And so he or she covets the positions of the white-collar and loses respect for them, therefore marginalizing them and negating the importance of white-collar work. I'm a blue-collar man. I'm the real guy. Because we believe that our wants and desires and feelings should be met at all times, we're willing to treat people as merely images on a screen for our entertainment and our fulfillment, and therefore we prop up and motivate those who are enslaving women and children in, the, children in the sex industry. Because we believe that our humanity is somehow connected to our ability to, to produce or bring value through commerce or art or athletic achievement, we devalue the life of the mentally handicapped and the physically handicapped and the elderly. They can't produce for us. This week in our sermon prep in the office, Dave Ryan said something that really hit home when I was thinking about this sermon. He said that one thing that's difficult for him, and I, I will say his, his uncle is handicapped, has been all of his life, lived with, with his mom, his grandmom, all of his life. And the last couple of years, David and his family, more his dad and mom, have cared for his uncle. And this is what he said. He said, when I hear others say when they're pregnant, oh, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl as long as it's healthy. Now, 
I know that there's nothing wrong with having healthy children. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to give us healthy children. But shouldn't we be people who truly want babies to live? And that's enough. The ideal is not necessarily in line with the will of the Lord that we have healthy babies. Sometimes what we view as unhealthy and unhelpful saves our soul. Let me move on and press a little more because we pressure our children to even succeed beyond what we've accomplished. We're high achievers and we expect them to be better than us. We create an environment that makes our young men and women feel like they must delay marriage until they have everything set up. Many have gone so far as to discourage young people from marriage until they've graduated college, started a career, contributed a lot to their 401k, saved 20% down on their first house, <clears throat> and started college tuition funds for their children that don't even exist because they haven't taken the first step of getting married. I know some of you are real big on planning, and I'm not, and that's my failure. But I got married at 20 years old because God put a woman in my life that I believed he wanted me to have as a wife. I'm not saying you should marry if you're 20. I'm saying I did. I had $800 to my name. And I love my wife more after five children in 24 years than I did the day I married her. And yet in our society, the average age of marriage is skyrocketing. First marriages, getting married, skyrocketing. How's it working for us? But when those same young people who we told to wait to get married sin and find themselves pregnant, the last thing they think they can do is tell their parents and those at the church because a baby has been communicated to be a roadblock to reaching all the dreams and all the achievements. So, you're standing on the sidewalk in front of the Planned Parenthood in Birmingham, Alabama, a cold November day, and a 16-year-old girl pulls up and goes inside to get the Plan B pill. But thank God she stopped to talk to Taylor Neese and Lily Weathers and some other people standing on that sidewalk who offered her hope. But see, she had to do it because she was scared to death of a baby. What produces that? So they take the plan B pill or they wait until they find out they're actually pregnant and they quickly get rid of the child because they don't want to disappoint everybody in their life. Everything in our lives bows down to the idol of the American dream. Everything. It's seductive. This sin of syncretism within the church to the culture in this area, it just doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem that horrific until you get to the horrific outcomes. And we should be lamenting and mourning this sin. 
not just the sin of the, the awful sin of 65 plus million babies murdered in the womb since 1972 legally in our country. We shouldn't just mourn that or the 120 million possibly more Chinese babies murdered because of the one-child policy. You know, I think about that with my two girls, and I think about the bravery of those women who gave my girls life. But let me tell you something. I think about the fact that we have created the world that we live in, the culture that we live in. We have in the United States. We're not a communist country that was forced into killing our babies. We're a wealthy country that decided for wealth and eugenics and a whole lot of other reasons, we wanted some babies but not other babies. And the church is, can be just as guilty of creating an environment that makes people feel like they're less than in all these ways. Grace Fellowship, today I want to call us to see our sin in this, to lament our sin in this, to repent of our sin in this, and then... To trust our faithful covenant God that he will hear us and he will heal us. He will save us through the glorious gospel of his son. Now I want us to look at Psalm 106 together. And I believe it holds a key to us changing our heart and our mind from the idolatry of the culture surrounding us and turning ourselves to a gospel-saturated culture. I want to read, though. It's a long section, but I want to read it because this is the history of our forefathers. And it's crucial that we see it as the history of our forefathers. It's not just some random nation over in the Middle East. These are our forefathers through Abraham and the promise made to him. These are our people. And they point us, this scripture points us to the new covenant and the need of Jesus Christ. And it warns us of following in the footsteps of our fathers. If we know our history and learn from it, then we don't have to be doomed to repeat it. So I want us to read this passage together. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love, his hesed, his covenant love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. <clears throat> Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, who, when they came from Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and I redeemed, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. And put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked. 
but sent them a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that, they would that he would make all of them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the land. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the people's as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore, in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Psalm 106 is our history, folks. And this is what I think we gather from it. So I want to make my statement right up front, and then I want to go through it quickly with you. Grace Fellowship, we must be a people who worship our God which leads us to seek justice and righteousness for our neighbors. In order to do this, we will have to remember our sin, lament, repent, and believe in Christ so that we are saved to the glorious 
praise of our Lord. Let's look at this statement. Grace Fellowship, we must be a people who worship our God. Which leads us to seek justice and righteousness for our neighbors. You remember the beginning vision statement for 2021. If we love Christ, what? Then we will love our neighbors. This is another version of that same statement. Grace Fellowship, we must worship Christ in a way that leads us to seek justice and righteousness for our neighbors. Psalm 106, 1 through 5 the psalmist is calling on God's people to worship God. Notice in verse 1 that he calls on us to praise the Lord and give thanks to our good God. Why? Because we have confidence that his steadfast covenant love endures forever. The psalmist doesn't base his praise or our praise on any other foundation than the foundation of God's impeccable character we're to worship God because he is good we are to worship God because God is faithful we're to worship God because his love endures forever our worship is based not on our circumstances not on us but on God himself we worship him this leads to the conclusion that the ones who know God's character best Live in a way that seeks justice and righteousness in everyday living for themselves and for their neighbors. The problem with the world that we're currently living in is everybody wants to seek a justice and a righteousness for others without God. And it is impossible. The only true way to seek justice and righteousness is to know the character of our God. To be transformed by that knowing and then to go into the world and seek what is right. We cannot fix the problems of this world by focusing first on them is what I'm saying. We fix the problems of this world and the problems with this heart by focusing on God himself and being transformed. That's what the psalmist says. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord and declare all his praise? The one who acts or observes justice and does righteousness. That's the one who can praise God. But implicit in that is, how do they do this? They praise the Lord. How do they praise the one they don't know? They have to know him. You see what I'm saying? That's the key. He ends the section by confidently asking God to remember him. Whenever God saves his people. The truth is, he wants God to remember him whenever God saves others. Prosperity, gladness, and glory for all God's people is the psalmist's name. It's not a selfish desire. Just save me and mine. Let the others go to hell in a handbasket. You won't find that theology in the Bible. The psalmist is saying corporately with the people of Israel, Save me when you save them. It's the same attitude the Apostle Paul had, is it not? In Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, that great evangelist and apostle, what does he say? I would give up my own salvation if, God, you would save all of my kinsmen according to the flesh. Save them, and by saving them, save me. It's the same prayer. It's the same desire. It's the corporate desire. Make us your people. 
The psalmist understands that in a very important way, both our sin and our salvation are corporate. Now, listen, I think it's probably clear some of the implications that you hear in my talk here about this passage. Grace Fellowship, we have to recognize that it all begins with knowing God. We can never get away from that basis. We can never go to do good and forget God. We will do bad and evil. You know what I'm saying? Don't trust ourselves that much. Trust the character of God. We cannot worship a God that we don't know. Then, by knowing Him, it leads us to worship Him because when you're in the presence of God and you know God, you worship Him. It's the only right response to being in the God of the universe's presence is worship. So we know Him and then we worship Him. And through that worship, we're transformed by beholding Him as people who go out into the world and make a difference. This is not a call to action to go change the world. This is a call to action to know God, worship God, be transformed by beholding God, and then go into the world and live a changed life by His power. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's what I'm saying to us. We affirm the sanctity of human life best when we first worship God for who He is and what He has done, and we know His image, and then we recognize His image in others. And we worship Him through even serving them and loving them and doing justice for them. Grace Fellowship, we not only need to worship, know God and worship Him in a way that leads to right action, but we must be willing to see our sin and lament and repent and mourn over our sin. That's where the psalmist goes next. Look at verse 6. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. Now, the psalmist who wrote this didn't do any of these things. You need to notice that. The Bible isn't all about, well, that happened generations ago, and yeah, it has lasting impacts, but no, we're not, we're not, that ain't our sin. The Bible doesn't recognize that. The psalmist didn't rebel against God at the Red Sea. The psalmist didn't rebel against God at the doorstep of the promised land. The psalmist didn't do that. Who did it? Who did it? His fathers did it. And because his fathers sinned, he accepted it. And he understood that their sin impacted his life. And that he was sinning in ways he had no way to know that he was doing it. And so what he said, instead of saying, look at those people back there that did those really dumb things. If I'd have been there, I wouldn't have done that. What did he say? Both we and our fathers have done it. He saw the corporate nature of his sin. He saw that it wasn't just a sin, one sin, or one action, or one thing. Even one thing repeated over and over again, he saw it as our sin. All of us. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, then this phrase makes sense to you because it's the type of language used by Moses in the book of Exodus. It's the kind of used in the Psalms. It's used by every major prophet. They all saw their sin, yes, as an individual act, but also as a whole, as the people of God. When I sin, it's my personal action thought or word that causes it to be sin. But I have to recognize that my sin impacts everybody around me in different ways. And therefore, when I sin, it impacts everyone here. And when you sin, it impacts everyone here. You see what I'm saying? 
There's no room for us to sit and look at America and say, boy, what sinners. What terrible people. Who could ever take the life of an unborn child? All the while, seductively, we've been weaved into this ethic of mobility and upwardness that sucks children into the death chamber. And we say, well, we didn't do it. And God says, yes, you did. Yes, you did. This psalm spends 37 verses out of 48 recounting episodes of sin committed by Israel in the past after they were delivered by the power of God from Egypt. We're not going to go through every one of them. So you didn't pack a lunch, so I'm not going to do that to you. But every one of them is significant. Every one of them is important. And they all have a common theme to them. So let me tell you what the common theme is. The Lord acts on behalf of his people. He protects them. He provides for them. He delivers them. He saves them. The people, though they're initially glad, quickly forget what God did. They, their hearts go away quickly. And in their state of denial, they fall into grievous sin, which leads to terrible consequences. Imagine that. And then they cry out to God. And what does God do? He acts on their behalf to provide for them and protect them and save them. And they praise Him for a moment. And then what do they do? They forget what God has done for them and go back into their sinful ways. And this is the whole of the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi. It's all the story. Is it just their story though? None of us would identify with God saving us and then us Forgetting God's salvation and sinning. None of us, I know. Don't nod your head right now. You have plausible deniability. This is our history, isn't it? God has saved us. God has blessed us. God has grafted us into his son, Jesus. And we go on and sin. The cycle's repeated over and over again, over and over again. And, I, and look... That first sin at the Red Sea, those people would have never imagined this. Verse 34, they did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them. That seems like a small thing. God said, when you go into the promised land, you kill everyone. Man, woman, and child. Now that's a whole other sermon. But I want to make one quick statement. When God commanded it, he was holy. His wrath was right. And Israel was an instrument of God's wrath on a people who had wandered and sinned and spit in the face of the holy God. And when we see the call for what we call genocide, it's holy genocide in this case. It ain't our genocide. We don't have that right. But God has that right. And when we see it, when we see it instead of repelling and saying, oh my goodness, who could ever kill that poor innocent little baby? We need to see it and weep our tears that God didn't snuff us out the same way. His wrath is righteous and good. And but for his great grace, love, and mercy, we would all be consumed. So when we look at the great death of the Old Testament, we don't look at it and say, oh my, how abhorrent, I could never. We should look at it and say, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be a Canaanite being consumed by a rightful God and a righteous God. 
He gave them a command, and they thought, well, we know better than God. We ain't got to kill all of them. They make good servants, and we can marry them. And they got some really good-looking women. We'll marry them. But when they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did, they got pulled into the same traps. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. They became unclean in their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Now, Christians, we need to accept the fact that like our fathers, many of us are assimilating into the culture around us and being just like them and doing all the things and saying all the things and acting in all the ways. It's just we've stamped Jesus on it so we feel better about it. But don't be surprised when years later you find out that your own children sacrificed your grandchildren to the gods of this world. And they just didn't have the courage to tell you because they just didn't want to disappoint you because they wanted to graduate from college, get a great degree and a great job and a great family and make you proud. As a parent, my heart has been ripped. Woe to us, parents, if that's the standard we hold up, even implicitly before our children. Woe to us. It's truly awful, and it's absolutely our story. We and our fathers have sinned. We have forgotten the glorious deeds of our God. We have turned instead to worship the culture of the gods around us in our time. It's leading to the sacrifice of our children, the elderly, the handicapped. It's leading to the destruction of our own lives. We need to lament our sin, people. We need to lament of it. We need to cry out to God for mercy and loving, the loving God that we serve will hear us and he will save us. What do we do? What do we need to be brought to God? How? How can we be brought to God? We're in such a bad way. How can we ever cross the chasm between where we are now and where God is? Even as Christians, we let sin separate us. How can we get back? How can we be right? Look at verse 23 with me. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. That's what they needed. They needed a mediator. And that is what they got, church. They got a mediator from God in Moses. He stood in the gap. Now he's talking about Exodus 32. And I don't read it. We're running short on time. Um, I'll get better at this whole speeding up and getting done and everything being concise, but... Anyway, y'all bear with me. I'll work children's sometime and pay my price. They needed a mediator. Exodus 32 is where it's at. Let me tell you this story really quickly. The people have sinned while God is delivering the glorious word of the Lord, the law. They're down making a calf and worshiping it as if it's God. And they're actually ascribing to it what God did for them. And God says, Moses, you go down there. I'm about to 
listen, I'm about to destroy all of them. And I'm going to make a new nation out of you. If Moses, what? We don't know. But if Moses says, that sounds great. Good plan. I get to be the father. Forget Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It can be me. What does Moses do? He says, oh, Lord. The Bible says he stood between God and the people. And he said, oh, Lord, but if you do that, the people of Egypt and the people around this this world will say it was because you could not deliver them into your promise that you killed them. Remember your covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and deliver them. He advocated. He mediated. They needed a mediator. And Moses was a mediator. Listen, he came down. Now, he wasn't perfect. He's not God. He came down. He lost his school. He broke the commandments of God. And a whole bunch of people died. And then he went to the tent of meeting. And he stood before that same, listen to me, the fire that was ready to consume the people is the fire of God that they worshiped before. It's not a different God. It's the same God. And he went into that tent, and when he came out, his face shone with such brightness that the people said, cover your face. We can't be with you. You stay up there and talk to God and send it back to us. But you're holding this now because you've been in the presence of God. Remember what I said? If we worship, if we know God and we worship him, he'll transform us. He transformed Moses. And then the people saw it, and it was like, his face shone like a light. He mediated. He stood between the people and God. The wrath of God and it consuming the people. They needed the mediator or they would have been consumed by God's wrath. But what I want you to see in this passage is that not only have we sinned like our fathers, but we need a mediator like our fathers. I need, you need, we all need a mediator. It ought to be a nursery rhyme. We all need a mediator. We need an advocate. We need someone to stand before God for us. And this is what God has done in his son. He sent us a mediator. He sent the law through Moses. And he sent the fullness of grace and truth in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, who had been with the Father from all worlds before the world began. This is what God has done for us, church. He sent his son, Jesus, to stand between the wrath of God and us. Jesus is the greater mediator of a greater covenant, church. He is God in human flesh so that he would live the perfect, sinless life we were commanded to live by God. He then died on a cruel cross for no sin that he had committed but our sin. Listen, the Bible says that our Savior was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross of wood cursed is every man who hangs from a tree that's what God said in the law Jesus was cursed as the mediator and while he was on that cross he was covered in our despicable sin so that his father So much so that his father could not even commune with him. He took your sin. 
He took my sin on himself on that cross. And he took our penalty and gave us his blessing. He did what Moses couldn't do. Moses was standing between them and saying, they need you. But he couldn't bring them to God. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't the greatest mediator. He went into the ground for three days, and when he was raised from the dead, it is the cosmic statement that God is no longer angry at those who are in his son by faith. Jesus Christ, church, he's not mad and angry and vengeful and waiting on you to walk into his presence and confess your sin so he can snuff you out. He snuffed his son out so you could live in his presence. That's why Jesus is so crucial, and that's why the new covenant is so beautiful. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the grave by rising from the dead. Jesus Christ, the mediator, carried us across the great chasm of our sin to God. He didn't stand between us and leave us down here. That's all Moses could do. He stood between us, and then he lifted us on his shoulders, and Peter says he carried us. To God. We don't stand, Christian, on this side of the gulf of our sin and God over here. We stand with God. Even when you fail, Christian, there's no condemnation for you. Believe the gospel. It's hard for me to believe the gospel. Specifically in this area of my life. It's hard for me to believe when I fail, God loves me or you love me. And fresh as the new snow today, I say to you. He carried us to God, we reside in Him, and there's no condemnation. So you may have chased the American dream in all of its wickedness. But if you're in Christ, you're set free indeed. So run to Him and be received by Him. He looked upon our distress when he heard our cry. For our sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused us, Grace Fellowship, to be pitied among all the nations which we were held captive in. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and all of Grace Fellowship's people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is the result of that. Because we value God providing for all of us through the ability to work, we recognize the dignity of all people regardless of their status in this life. And we use whatever God has given us in excess beyond our needs to bless those who are in need and struggling in economics and economic failure. With cheerful joy-filled hearts, we serve our brothers. Because we value each person using the gift that God has given them, we celebrate those who choose to serve the Lord in trades or office work or artisans or creative jobs or serve in various roles with our military, our government. We value all of them because we love God. We will not treat because we are satisfied in our soul with the great God we worship. We will not treat people merely 
as images on a screen for our fulfillment. We will not objectify our fellow human being. We will work to end slavery and oppression of all forms because we believe that our humanity is precious ultimately because we are in the image of God. We value the life of the mentally handicapped and the physically handicapped and the elderly because we disciple our children to passionately pursue Christ with all their hearts. We teach them to live either a single life given to the kingdom work of God or to find a Christian partner and raise a future generation to know God and make Him known whenever God's timing is for that. Because we do these things, we refuse to teach our children that the goal of life is to pursue some false idol of an American dream. But rather we teach them that all of life is wrapped up in the joy of pursuing Christ. This is the culture we long to build at Grace Fellowship. And through Grace Fellowship, to the whole world. And the work has just begun. And by God's grace, it will continue until Jesus returns. I want to pray and call Corey up to end us as a response. Let's pray. Father, as we close, we just simply bow before you and we praise you. And we, Lord, we need you. We need you. Jesus, help us now as you already have, but continue to help us. We're not just saved. We need to be saved. And so we call on you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what a what a message! And uh, if the deacons would uh, come and begin passing uh, the elements out, that would be great. Um, or just anybody come get these uh, bowls and begin passing them out. That would be awesome. I may do it. Uh, yeah, come on. Um, but uh, what we're what we're going to do today is we're going to respond. And uh, and you may be thinking, I thought we took communion last Sunday. Uh, why are we doing this again? But uh, the, the pastors have decided this might be a, a rhythm that we just want to uh, do every Sunday is this is the way that God calls us to respond uh, to him. If you're listening this morning, uh, maybe like I am, I'm hearing all that Carlton's saying in, throughout the message, and honestly, I'm just a little overwhelmed because I'm thinking to myself, uh, where do I even begin? Like, where do I even begin making changes? Where do I even begin uh, looking under rocks in my life to see what's actually there and, and what actually, why, why I'm so wrapped up in that stream of life, whatever it is, uh, that's so, it's going to sow into my children things that I don't want. It's going to sow into things in my coworkers that I don't want. Uh, and, and if you're wondering that, where do I begin? You begin right here in what we're about to do. You begin by trusting in Jesus and drinking of his blood as he called us to and eating of his flesh. And so the elements you're handed uh, right now is, uh, is a cup and a cracker, and I'm going to grab one of those uh, myself. And if you want to go ahead and begin peeling back the layers of that, that would be great. And this is a super special time. We don't do this uh, willy-nilly or without reverence. Uh, this is a very, very special time. But it's, it's how God calls us to respond to him. And, you know, when Jesus in the scriptures called uh, his disciples and those listening to him to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, do you want to know what they did? 
many of them left. They said, you've gone too far. Uh, We've been listening and we've been intrigued, but at this point, this is just too much. If you want us to drink your blood and eat your flesh. And, uh, And what Jesus is saying here is that the only hope you have is in me. That's what he's saying. The only hope you have is in me. There's not hope in you going home today and trying to figure out how you can make everything in your life right. There's not hope in that. Because as Carlton mentioned, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail again. Even as bad as you want to worship and serve him and love him with all your heart, it's just our nature until one day when he glorifies us that we are prone to wonder. We're prone to fail. And this isn't, doesn't mean we shouldn't respond with holiness back to God, but it does mean that when we fail, and you may find yourself in this place this morning, when you fail, you have an advocate in Christ. You have someone who's standing in the gap. You have someone who said, I've prayed for you, that when you return, you strengthen the brothers, right? And so this is Christ, our substitute. So if you've already peeled that first layer back, I'm just going to call you, as Christ did in the scriptures, this is his flesh, and you may eat of it. And as you peel back that second layer, Jesus says, this is my blood. By it, you're, you're cleansed, you're, you're forgiven, you're washed clean. So we drink. Amen. <laughs> now we rejoice. Amen. Our God has saved us. He's done it. It's a reality, church. It's as real as real can be. 